We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. He was named to the NBA's 50th and 75th anniversary teams, and he was also named to the ABA's all-time team. He's one of only 14 men to win titles as a player and a coach. And along with Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, and Larry Bird, he is one of only four men to have averaged 20 points, 10 rebounds, and four assists for an entire career. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Billy Cunningham. Billy, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is, um, it, it's my pleasure to have you on. Uh, Billy, as, as you probably know, the, the way I kind of structure the show, we just talk about, you know, the early days in your case growing up in Brooklyn and just take it from there. So, um, so to that point, you're, you're born in Brooklyn, you're raised in Brooklyn, you go to Erasmus Hall High School. Tell me about growing up in Brooklyn in, you know, kind of the 50s. Uh, it was just wonderful. Um, you, you had the schoolyards, basketball was the game. Um, in the schoolyards, and of course, baseball was huge in Brooklyn at that time with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And growing up in New York, you didn't realize how fortunate you were, uh, knowing that you had three baseball teams. You had the Giants, Yankees, and the Dodgers, and they were being televised on different channels. But uh, you got a chance to really watch. In many cases, they were the two teams that would be in one, at least one of them would be in the World Series. So. Everybody had a baseball team, and everybody would go to the schoolyard, too, to play basketball, slap ball, kickball, uh, all different games as uh, kids. And uh, it was such a good time that you look at our environment now that, you know, my mom would say I'd leave the house when I was five or six years old and you know, make sure you're home for dinner. And now you're, you're very concerned about your children, where they're going, who they're going to be with. And uh, there's, it's, it's just a different world. Uh, and I was just first fortunate to grow up in Brooklyn at that time. Sure. And and you go to Erasmus Hall High School. And I have to say, of of literally of all the high schools in America, Erasmus Hall is just fascinating to me. 
Um, across the years, across the decades, certainly not overlapping with you, but I mean, Sid Luckman, Al Davis, Barbara Streisand, the, the boxing promoter, Bob Arum, Jerry Reinsdorf, who owns the Bulls and the, and the White Sox, just an amazing conglomeration of, of, of guys who, you know, guys and women who went there. Um, yep. how, how did you choose Rasmus Hall? And, and tell me about your experience there. Well, it's, it's kind of a funny story how I ended up there. Uh, initially, when I was in the eighth grade in grammar school at a school called St. Rosa Lima, which I don't think exists any longer, um, they had a basketball tournament during Christmas uh, at uh, St. Francis Prep. And my high school, my grammar school, we participated in it. And I was asked by one of the uh, brothers at that school at that time if I'd be interested in going to St. Francis, which I told them I would love to. And if I passed the entrance exam, he told me that I would have a scholarship. And I'll never forget going to reg register uh, with my dad. And uh, we got there and mentioned my name. And I think I have a scholarship. And they said, no, we don't have you down here for a scholarship. And my father said, well, let's go. And went down the street and went to Erasmus Hall. And uh, that's how I ended up there at Erasmus. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and you, so obviously you play basketball there. There was a guy named Doug Moe who would have been probably four years in front of you. Like you wouldn't have overlapped, but did you know Doug Moe from your, from your days at Erasmus? Uh, I had met Doug Moe while I was at Erasmus. He came back to see the high school coach. Uh, and that was my only relationship with him at that time. And I just knew he played basketball there and was going at the University of North Carolina. Uh, but in later dates, uh, we ended up, uh, he was an assistant coach when I played for the Carolina Cougars. And um, we developed a, a very close relationship. And matter of fact, he's living in San Antonio, Texas now. And uh, he's, he's just doing great. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, I I love the the whole you know kind of that legendary pipeline of of New York City area guys going down to North Carolina. I guess it was Frank McGuire who began that recruiting. Um, but be, before we get to that, so at Erasmus, you are first team All New York City. You're the MVP of the Brooklyn League in '61, your senior year. You're a parade All American. Tell me about your years playing for Erasmus Hall and just the level of competition in the city at that time. Oh, the, well, in New York, uh, I think that I could easily say that that was the best basketball going on at that time in the country. Uh, we had two truly exceptional players at that time. That was Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown. And uh, uh, I, Roger Brown and myself were arch rivals, our schools, and we would split. We'd, he'd win at his court and we'd win at my court at Erasmus, and uh, of course, Connie Hawkins played on an exceptional team at Boys High, and they were a perennial all-star team, you know, they were, uh, I remember they were just overwhelming, uh, if you're playing against them, that you'd end up turning around, watching them warm up, uh, because I think seven or eight, the first seven or eight players on the team could dunk, and that was an amazing thing in those days, Yeah, and uh uh, they they ended up, matter of fact, Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown ended up playing against each other uh, my junior year for the city championship. And Roger Brown had one of those games that it was just phenomenal. If there was a three-point line, 
even the NBA three-point line, uh, Roger would have scored oh, at least 50 points. But uh, Connie Hawkins fouled out, but the rest of the team at Boys High was so talented, they were able to carry it through and win the city title. Wow. And then, um, and then, and then remind me, your senior year, did you guys win the city title your senior year? Yes, we won the city title. The team I played on was so exceptional. As a matter of fact, at, at that time in New York City, you could enter um, high school or grammar school, excuse me, depending on your birthday. And I went to grammar school in, um, in February, I started. So when I graduated high school, I graduated in February before the city finals were over. And the team I played on in high school was so good that they were able to move on and win the city title, which was a great, great honor and great accomplishment. Oh, wow. So, so the way it worked was you, you graduate in February and you're done. You watch the team play from there on out. Yeah. Well, I ended up going to, um, I was going to go to, uh, I had committed to North Carolina and I had planned on going to um, a prep school for a year for six months, excuse me, and then going down to Chapel Hill. But then I got a phone call at the last minute to invited me back to Chapel Hill uh, to spend the first from February till June at the, at the University of North Carolina. Got it. Okay. And, and tell me about that recruiting process. So Frank McGuire, legendary coach from the New York City area, uh, goes down to North Carolina, wins a title in the 50s, and he's bringing guys down from Long Island and the city and New Jersey. Um, tell me about your kind of decision-making process. I'm assuming you were being recruited pretty widely. Well, I didn't have a lot of decisions to make in my household at that time. Uh, Frank McGuire's sister lived around the block from me, and I used to deliver the paper to her. And my sister to this day, her best friend, is was uh, Frank McGuire's niece. So when Frank McGuire came to my house to recruit me, and um, after leaving, my father informed me that I had two choices. Either play for Uncle Frank or you go to a Catholic university because I was the first one in the family to go to college. And there was a great fear of, that I would lose my faith for some reason. That was uh, the thought process. But uh, that's, And there was another guy in the room, too, that I didn't even realize that um, turned out to be a pretty good coach, too, and that was Dean Smith. Yeah. who took over after Frank McGuire moved up to the Warriors. Right. Yeah. So, well, that's pretty funny. I guess when he's being called Uncle Frank, <laughs> you, you're pretty sure you're going to be going there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So your, so your freshman year in Chapel Hill, Frank McGuire has now left. Um, and obviously back then, freshmen couldn't play. So you're playing on the freshman team. I'm assuming you're practicing with the varsity. I practiced for a while with the varsity, yeah. And um, matter of fact, uh, the freshman team was as good as the varsity. We had a couple other kids from uh, New York, a guy named uh, Billy Lawrence and um, Jay Neary, who both played in the Catholic League in uh, New York that were there for my freshman year. And we had a, a very good team. It was a shame that uh, they didn't stay there very long for different reasons. And... Uh, um, after the freshman year, then moved up and I was playing uh, my sophomore year with Larry Brown, who we all know is a great coach and a heck of a basketball player as well. Sure. 
And, and when you were a freshman, there was another, I, I think I counted, I looked at the roster. There were like six or seven guys from, you know, kind of the New York metropolitan area. In addition to you and Larry Brown, there was also a senior when you were a freshman, Donnie Walsh, who would become the GM of, of the Knicks and the Pacers. Uh, yep. What was Donnie like as a player back then? Well, he was my first roommate in college. Oh, is that and, right? Oh, yeah. And, and people don't know, Donnie was uh, editor of a law review, too, at the uh, law school at Chapel Hill. Uh, exceptional student. And uh, I had got to meet Donnie before uh, I got to North Carolina. Frank McGuire had brought me up to Donnie Walsh's house um, up in the Bronxville he lived. And his father was a dentist, as a matter of fact. And I remember going down to the schoolyard and playing a little bit with Donnie at that point. But uh, yeah, I happened to have spoken to Donnie around two weeks ago. He's out there in uh, Indianapolis and doing fine. Oh, that's great. Oh, that that's uh, that's very cool. Um, and so then, so then you, you play your your next three years at uh, UNC. You're all ACC each year. Your senior year, you're the captain of the team. You're an All American. You're the Player of the Year in the conference. Um, the team the team is is good for sure, but you're not winning the ACC those years. And at one point you guys come home from a, an away game loss to Wake Forest and, and Dean Smith is being hung in effigy on campus. What were those, you know, kind of early, it's amazing to, to kind of see that thinking about what a legend he became, but those first couple of years must've been kind of tough. Well, when I first got there, if you remember, there was a, a scandal in college basketball yep. um, and, and North Carolina was involved with it. Not that anybody dumped or shaved any points, but what they didn't do, they didn't turn this young man named Lou Brown in who was working for a bookie. And his job was to get players to uh, shave points. And uh, he was on the team, as a matter of fact, uh, when I first got there on the varsity. And the penalty was North Carolina could not recruit outside of the state. And it's hard to believe, but there was segregation at that time in the state of North Carolina. So on the team, there was only white players, and the quality of high school basketball at that time in North Carolina was not at the level it turned out to be in later years with the players like Buck Williams and James Worthy and Michael Jordan, et cetera, who um, obviously improved the status and the level of play in, in the high school basketball there. Yeah. Uh, so if that, that really was uh, hampering uh, Dean Smith in regards to what he could accomplish uh, as a coach, my sophomore year, we were a pretty good team. And plus, our schedule was limited. And what happened was we lose to um, Wake Forest. We come back in front of Woolen Gym, and there is uh, this owl, this um, sheet hanging on the, a tree in front of Woolen Gym. And initially, I wasn't even sure what the devil it was. And then it was I explained to me, and I, with another player, we just pulled it down because we realized, number one, it wasn't his fault. We lost to Wade Forest. And um, if anything, it brought the team together because that weekend, if I'm not mistaken my timing, but uh, we played Duke at Duke, and uh, we beat them, which was uh, if you would take a loss at Wake Forest and a win at Duke, that would be a very big plus. Yeah, yeah. And and so, uh, yeah, so you're you're – the ACC player of the year. And then when it comes to the draft, you're drafted by the 76ers and the coach there is Dolph Shays, who as a player, obviously hall of fame player. 
and you guys come in and your, your team is very good. You're 55 and 25, your rookie year. Uh, you make the all rookie team. You're kind of a sixth man on the team. You've got Wilt Chamberlain there. Curious about like the transition to the pros. And also, I guess Wilt had just come in from San Francisco the year before. Tell me what it was like, you know, playing with Wilt Chamberlain. Well, first of all, when I got drafted by Philadelphia, I didn't even know the draft was going on. <laughs> and uh, I remember being in my dorm room and somebody yelled, hey, Cunningham, there's somebody on the phone for you. And I go up and it's a sports writer. I forget his name, but he congratulating me on being drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers. So that's how I found out that I was drafted by Philadelphia. And next of all is that the only reason they drafted me was the owners of the team uh, never saw me play. And they called Frank McGuire and asked him if he saw anybody they, that, he, that they should be interested in. And he had recommended me to be drafted by Philadelphia. So that's how I got there. And then when I got there, uh, you know, of course, Dolph Sage and Will Chamberlain, as you mentioned, and it was a team that had just come off a tough loss the year before against Boston in Game 7. And uh, initially I was drafted as a guard, and we were playing an exhibition game in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, of course, I'm excited going down in that area to play a basketball game on a new team. And Casey Jones was guarding me. And I think the first four or five times I tried to get the ball to half court, he stole it from me. <laughs> and that was the end of me playing at the guard position. And for the next, from that point on, I was a forward in the NBA. But playing with Wilt was um, a great thrill and honor that I didn't appreciate probably as much as I should have at the time. You know, when you, you think of Wilt, you know, and you think of great players, like I think Seth Curry, I think, is a great player because he's changed the game that the three-point line has, because of him, has become such a part of the game. And Will Chamberlain, initially, the three, the, the foul lane was, uh, I think, six or eight feet wide. and no, it was six feet wide, and they extended it to ten because of him. Hmm. And because it would have been ridiculous, him, his size and strength. And also, you were, at that time of the, before, you were able to throw the ball over the top of the basket out of bounds under your own basket. So all you'd have to do is throw it over the top of the basket and Wilt would catch it and dunk it. So things change. And also, touching the ball over the rim. Because Wilt could just catch anything, you know, if you shot the ball and just grab it in midair and just put it like you do in European basketball and just drop it in the basket. So his impact was uh, quite, quite factor in uh, the way the game is played today sure and and obviously also just a you know just a formidable presence as as a person i read somewhere that the first time you ever saw him i guess it was would have been you know training camp you see a purple bentley pull up you're right you see a purple <laughs> on the balcony of uh if you could picture the old holiday inn inns where you'd be walking out on a balcony to get to your room Sure. And it's the first couple of days of training camp, and Wilt's not there. And here comes this purple Bentley convertible pulling into the parking lot and going, whose car is that? And stepping out of it is Wilt Chamberlain, and it was like, oh, my goodness, look at him. <laughs> you know, it was uh, – I knew who he, he was for sure because, you know, it, it, the game was not 
what it is today. It wasn't nearly as popular. There was maybe a game on on Sundays with ABC. And if you look back on history, in most cases, you know, the people talk about Arnold Palmer and Impact and Jack Nicklaus on golf. If you look at Russell and Chamberlain, that that's the way the games used to be introduced with ABC. It was Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, and the Celtics and the 76ers. It right. was a, they, they were the two people that were carrying the game of basketball. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously we're going to get to a lot of this as, as we go on, but I, I saw a great quote from you at one point. You said something like, yeah, I'm very fortunate. I was able to, you know, play and coach in the eras where you had Chamberlain and Russell and then kind of that Irving Bird, you know, Magic Johnson era, you know, obviously two great and and formative periods for NBA basketball that, you know, kind of lead to it being where it is today. Well, you're right. I mean, it was um, the competition was so intense. And, uh, you know, the year we won the championship, I still remember one play that stands out to me was at the end of the game, probably eight seconds left. And Luke Jackson uh, is dribbling the ball down. He's going to lay it in or dunk it. And there's Bill Russell sprinting down the court trying to block the shot. And I, I was like, we're up by 20 points. Or forget the number, but he still believed that the scoreboard was wrong. That, uh, you know, we can't lose. We, we don't lose. And uh, it was quite an accomplishment. And uh, it was interesting, too, after the game, uh, we're obviously celebrating and exciting. And I remember Chamberlain saying, uh, hold up now. We know we got another series left. And it was like, bang, as soon as he said that, everything became very quiet. Right. Like the, the job's not done yet. Yes, absolutely. And you had to go out and call the Warriors, right? The San Francisco Warriors? Yes, which was a great team. Yeah. You know, with Rick Barry and Nate Thurman, Jeff Mullins, et cetera, uh, Tom Mascheri. And it was uh, – it was. I remember the first game we played them. I think it was an overtime before we beat them, and then we went out there. And I think we were up. We came back to Philadelphia up three-one, and everybody just assumed because we had such a an exceptional team that we were going to win in the fifth game. We would win, and we turned out we lost, and we had to go back to San Francisco and beat them out there. And your your coach at that time. So it's, it's interesting. Your your first year, D Dolph Shays, again, you know, legendary player, is your coach. And you guys are good. I mean, you lose to the Celtics in the Eastern Finals, but you know, that's <laughs> a lot of teams lost to the Celtics in those days. Um, but then he leaves, and Alex Hannum comes in, and Hannum is has an interesting place in history. In Bill Russell's thirteen years in the league, he wins eleven titles. The only two he didn't win. Alex Hannum coached the other team once with the Hawks and, you know, Pettit and Lenny Wilkins and those guys. And then your year with Philadelphia, w what led to Shays leaving and Hannum coming in and, and tell me about those two coaches. I, the Dolph Shays was a wonderful man. Um, but one of the problems that he had, uh, which I learned from is that he had played against or played with many of the players that he was coaching. And it didn't sit well. It wasn't a good working relationship. And uh, he never got, I think, the respect from the players that he deserved. Uh, 
And at that point, uh, the easiest thing to do was to fire a coach, which is still is today. Sure. And Alex Hannum also uh, had a reputation to him being a tough guy. And the feeling was that you needed a tough guy to get through the wilt on what, what and how we wanted to play the game of basketball. Right. Yeah. And, and your team. So, you know, obviously it's you, uh, you, it's Will, it's Hal Greer, a Hall of Famer, uh, Chet Walker. Walker. Yeah. Chet Walker, Luke Jackson, Wally Jones. And Larry Costello was on that team, but tore his Achilles. Okay. At the time he tore his Achilles, I think our record was 44 and 4. And if, if Will could have shot foul shots, it would have been better. And, <laughs> yeah, and you got to remember, I think there were nine teams. So we were playing the Celtics 10 times during the course of the year. Right. Before the playoffs, so and then you had um, the Royals with Cincinnati with Oscar Robinson and Jerry Lucas, and you go down the list. It was, uh, uh, and, and most teams carried you know, maybe ten, ten or eleven players in those days. So you probably had ninety players, ninety to one hundred in the whole league. Whereas yeah. now every team has at least fifteen. Yeah, there was no dilution. Every every team was every team had a couple of stars. Right. Um, and I read a quote, I, I, it was one of the Celtics said it, that, uh, that first year when you were, you know, a, a rookie and, and coming off the bench, the, uh, Red Auerbach in Boston hated playing against you. And he quickly realized that if you were, you know, maybe just a little bit cold in shooting, Shays would put you on the bench and, or, you know, kind of keep you on the bench more. So he would just double you and triple you to make sure that you weren't shooting well. And then, then he didn't have to worry about you. He could just focus on the other guys. Did you ever get that sense? Well, I, truthfully, I stunk uh, my first year in the playoffs. Um, it was uh, I was so wired and so uh, excited about playing in it. Um, I just didn't let it flow, and I had to figure out how I could overcome that, which I did. I needed to keep myself busy during the course of the day. Then I was more relaxed and just played the game of basketball from that that year on. But it was not. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, one thing I'd like to add is that we started the Will Chamberlain Foundation here in Philadelphia, and what we've given out is nearly a hundred scholarships. And I'm on the committee, and the 76ers also help with us, and we we have given out uh, close to a hundred scholarships to kids in the inner city of Philadelphia, in his name and. He was a big contributor financially, plus his name f- to make this happen. Oh wow! And is that based on on academic success or need or a combination of the, all the above? All things, you know, need your academics, uh, the type of that uh, we've have kids that have gone to Harvard, kids that have gone to Cheney State. So we have quite a variation: uh, kids that are lawyers, some are uh, nurses. So it's been a great thing to be involved with, uh, seeing how uh, his legacy has been maintained and how it's helped others. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's, that's great to hear. Um, and so you win. And then the next year, you guys are even you guys have a, you know, another great season. You're you're 62 and 20. Um, but after the season, Wilt leaves and goes to L.A. Um, well, what, and if I interrupt you. Yeah. Here's, that season, we end up, okay, we're in the playoffs, like you said, 
and the roof blows off the spectrum where we're playing at this time. And we have to go play at the Palestra. And during the course of the game against the Knickerbockers, uh, we, who we did defeat, I fell and I broke my wrist. And I could not play any longer. And then we go into the playing the Celtics to see who's going to be in the final. It's basically for the championship. And uh, I'm sitting on the bench, and I'll never forget the I'm figuring out I'm going to sit by the pool and enjoy the playoffs and we're going to beat the Celtics. And we ended up being up 3-1 and end up losing that series mm. uh, by a couple points. And it was uh, that was the end of the era. And that's why I interrupted you, because at that point, also, we lost one of the owners, a guy named Ike Richmond, who, by the way, passed away with a massive heart attack at the Boston Garden, right on the, right on the floor. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, and one of the things is that supposedly uh, he had, he represented Will too uh, in business, and he uh, had promised Wilt a percentage of the team. I don't remember how much of what it was. And Irv Kozlov, who owned the other part of the team, uh, said, "Well, I don't know what you're talking about, and I'm not going to do that." And that started the downfall of the Seventy Sixers because then Wilt was traded to. Lakers, mm. who went on and won the championship, but um, we were a good team after that. But we were never. We should have been a dynasty for a handful of years after that. But because of that move uh, of trading wealth, that just and then after that, Luke Jackson tore his Achilles. Uh, you know, just everything seemed to fall apart at that point. Yeah, they, they traded Chet Walker. Right. Yeah, which was a terrible trade. Chet was a great player, and we complimented each other on the court. And uh, it just uh, was amazing how quickly we were on the top of the mountain and how quickly we were on the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And and in there, uh, like within a year or two, uh, Hannum is gone, and Jack Ramsey, who would obviously become coaches you guys, then the Buffalo Braves, and then wins a title out in Portland with, with Bill Walton. Uh, Jack Ramsey comes along. What, what was playing for Dr. Jack like? I loved it. Played under some great coaches, and especially Dean Smith and for Jack Ramsey. Um, I love playing for Jack Ramsey. And uh, I guess, you know, I probably had my best years professionally playing for him um, individually. And he was, uh, he was just a, a wonderful passionate coach, uh, quality man, a special man. He, um, in fact, I don't know how many people know, Dr. Jack was also a Navy SEAL. Oh, wow. Very, yeah, so he's, he's a pretty tough guy besides that. And uh, I just love playing for him and uh, just had a whole experience. And at the end, it was a shame because uh, I was looking to get a new contract and because I was I think first couple of years now I'm first team all pro and I'm making $40,000 a year <laughs> and I wanted to get to 90 and uh, Irv Kosloff wouldn't pay me that and then the Carolina Cougars in the ABA stepped up seeing that I went to school down there uh, and offered me I forget it was two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand dollars a year which was something you know, now I have two children, <laughs> and 
I have some other priorities, and uh, so I accepted that deal and went to the Carolina Cougars. Yeah, and that and so that's an interesting time because obviously you've got you know the ABA at this point is you know kind of three, four, five years old. You know, kids coming out of college are making the decision between which one to go to, a little bit like the AFL and the NFL. Um, and you sign a contract, but it's like for for two years forward. And then there's like a period of time where it looks like they're kind of not fully paying your bonus. And so you decide you're not going to go. And then a court rules that you are. Tell, tell me about that experience. It's kind of an interesting read. Well, what happened, I was supposed to get a bonus at a certain date, which I didn't. And then now the 76ers want me now that I, uh, and I'm still with the team at the time. Right. And uh, now the ownership changed with the Carolina Cougars during this period of time. And a guy named Ted Munchak purchased them and this, the Carolina Cougars. And he, and I wasn't even aware, had taken it to um, court and the, the, uh, the judges ruled in favor of the Carolina Cougars that if I was going to play basketball, I had to go play for the Carolina Cougars. So uh, I, I was blindsided and I think the 76ers as well. So then I went down to play for the Carolina Cougars, and that's where I ran into, uh, well, Larry Brown and Doug Moe with the coaches. First of all, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my period of time with the um, Carolina Cougars. I only played a little over a year, but George Gervin, Wynn Nader, Rick Barry was in the ABA, but he had left. He had gone back to the to the Warriors at this point. I wish I could remember all the other great players that were. Oh, Artis Pilmore, Dan Issel. Right, you're right. Sure, exactly right. So uh, uh, it was it, there was no question about the talent, and you can see the impact the ABA had on the NBA eventually. If you look at the three-point line for number one, uh, they were the ones that had that three-point line in there, and it's carried over to the NBA, and now it's the major force in the whole league. Oh yeah. It's, it's changed the way the game is played. Absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting. Yeah. So you, you come into Carolina, Larry Brown, your former college teammate is, is your coach. And, you know, for, you know, obviously he's well, well known for, you know, kind of jumping around both in the college and pro ranks. This is basically his first st stop as a coach. Right. I think. That's his first job. First yeah. job. He was an assistant. He was a uh, play for the New Orleans basketball team in the ABA. Then he was an assistant coach for a little bit with Dean Smith and he became um, the head coach of the Carolina Cougars. And so, and it's interesting. So you guys obviously had a history. Do you have to have it? Does he have to have a sit down with you where he says, okay, man, I know we've got a history together, but I've got to be the coach and you've got to be the player. Do you have that conversation? We had a talk before the season started and um, we, we never had issues during the whole year. Okay. I can honestly say Larry did a great job. Uh, it was a tough, tough place to play because our home court was Greensboro, but we also had a home court in Raleigh and in Charlotte. So we would, <laughs> uh, you'd be jumping in your car, driving to Raleigh two hours, playing a game, or jumping in, going to Charlotte and playing two hours. So it was really, uh, in the cities that you had to fly to, it wasn't easy to get to in many cases. So it was a very draining um, season playing for the Carolina Cougars. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was interesting. I was looking at your playoff games in that 73 season 
And I think in two series, you had, call it seven home games, and it was like three games in Greensboro, two in Raleigh, two in Charlotte. I mean, your home games are away games almost. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, and uh, it wasn't like uh, you flew into, well, that you had a hotel to stay in, in Raleigh or in in um, in Charlotte. Now, you just got up and you jumped in your car with a teammate and you drove down there. There wasn't even a bus. And it's, and it's, I was looking at the roster. One one interesting little, you know, kind of side note. Years later, Larry Brown, you know, becomes the coach of Kansas and wins a title. The star of the team is Danny Manning. In recruiting Danny Manning, he hires Ed Manning to be one of his assistant coaches. It turns out Ed Manning is on that Carolina Cougars team with you that Larry Brown coached. I'm assuming that's where they first kind of came in contact. Yeah, yep. Uh, he was a great guy, Ed. I don't know uh, where he is today. I know uh, I see his son, Danny, is floating around in the coaching world. Sure. Uh, but but uh, he, he was a, a great teammate and uh, great in the locker room, especially. Yeah. And that team was good. I mean, you, you guys lost b- both of your years. You lost in the Eastern Finals to Kentucky Colonels. But that team was loaded. That was Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, Louis Dampier. We should have. It's easy to say. We should, the biggest loss we had that year was Mike Lewis, who was on that team, uh, got hurt and was out for the year. Mm-hmm. And I think things could have been a lot different if we had Mike Lewis uh, playing uh, for, for that ball club. We needed someone in the middle uh, to really solidify that team. and uh, uh, But that's the way sports are. Yep, yeah, exactly. And, and so then – and so in your two years, you're all ABA both times. You're actually even all ABA defensive, like second team defensive team. You're the MVP one year. You average 24 and 12, and you lead the league in steals one season. And then at the end of the 74 season, the Carolina team, uh, the Silna brothers buy it, and they're gonna, and they're going to move the team to St. Louis setting up one of the most incredible deals ever for anybody who's watched the documentary about the, the television deal the Silna brothers set up when the ABA, you know, kind of folded into the NBA and they didn't take the spirits of St. Louis team. And they basically struck a deal for a percentage of the national TV contract, which was $0 at the time, but has paid them hundreds of million dollars since then. Did, did you have a relationship with the Silna brothers? Could you kind of see that they yeah, had a vacuum in? I did, and if I could backtrack a second for you, yeah, um, I played the first handful of games uh, in '74, and then I had a kidney problem. I had a blockage in the, my kidneys of my bladder, and I ended up going in for surgery. Uh, just I couldn't play any longer, and my first surgery was unsuccessful, so I had to go back and get another surgery, and uh, then I t- tried to catch up to the team at the end of that season. So, in which I just didn't have the strength or the fatigue. Matter of fact, it just, uh, at the end of the day, it was probably the end of my career because it just took everything out of me. And then the Selmers brothers, I remember I meeting them in New York. And they're very much aware of my situation physically. And um, we're sitting there having dinner, and they're offering me, uh, I think, something like $400,000 a year. Uh, X amount of years, and if I can't play, I have another position within the organization. And I'm ready to just go, you got to be kidding me. My goodness gracious. And, and this is before I even 
negotiate. This is what they're offering me. <laughs> and uh, I, I came home, told my wife, and she t- informed me. She said, I'm not going. <laughs> so <laughs> so that was the end of uh, my relationship with the Selma brothers. And you're right. That's, I'm trying to think of the the attorney who did that deal for them. Danoff, I think it was Danoff, I think his name was. Okay. And it was just ingenious, ingenious. And uh, I think they ended up selling out, selling that uh, situation back to the NBA. Yeah, I think like just in the last couple of years, I think they resolved that. Yeah, you're, you're right. In the last couple of years. So they, uh, unbelievable. That's, that was the most profitable franchise <laughs> in, in sports. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, and so then, and so then you, but you, you ultimately make the decision to go back to the NBA and you go back to the 76ers. Now the, the team is not what it was when you left them. In fact, in fact, the year you left your first year in Carolina, they, they basically set like a league record for fewest wins or lowest win percentage, whatever they win nine games. So you were lucky to miss that one. Um, it, one yeah. could argue they, they, they had that record because you were gone. Um, but when you come back, obviously they're a little bit better, but it's still not what it was back when you had initially played for them. What were those last two years like? Obviously, your second year back is when you blow out your knee and, and basically end your career. Basically, after my kidney operations, uh, I changed my style of play pretty much, that I was even more of a, a passer, uh, creating situations, um, not being as uh, aggressive offensively. And I just didn't have the stamina to play as many minutes. Um, but then, as you said, you know, it uh, it was good to be back home. But uh, then dribbling down the court, I just tore my ACL. And uh, I'll never forget asking the doctor after I got off the court, well, what do I have to do to get back to playing? He said, you want the answer? I said, of course. He said, you're finished. And that was the end of my basketball career. And uh, then I had to move on with life. Yeah. I, I, I saw a quote from you. You said something like, obviously, you don't want it to happen to you. But you said on some level, it made it easier because you never had to, you know, deal with that decision of when is it time to hang it up. Yeah, it was kind of a blessing, you know, that uh, I knew I wasn't playing at the level I wanted to play at. And um, was money going to be a factor in uh, me trying to hang on a little longer than maybe I should have. Yeah. And, and in that, in, in your time back in Philadelphia, basically a season and a little bit of a second season, Gene Shue is your coach um, and Pat Williams is the GM. And the team obviously has turned over a little bit. Now you've got Doug Collins and Steve Mix. And then your last year where you only played 20 games, they've drafted Daryl Dawkins. They've got Lloyd Free who would become World Be Free. They've acquired George McGinnis via trade, um, it, which which all is interesting because it, it kind of sets up that you know, when you come back to coach a few years later, these guys are on your team. These are part of the nucleus of your team. Um, but but in that first year or two, you decide to go into broadcasting. Uh, did you did you enjoy broadcasting or did you kind of miss being in the action as a player or ultimately a coach? I, I kind of miss the action. Yeah. Um, you know, I enjoy, I love the people I work with. It was fun, but it wasn't enough for me. Uh, my biggest concern when I was doing it was, uh, I hope it's not an overtime and I miss my flight. <laughs> no, that was a big concern. And, but I mean, 
I got a chance to work with Musburger, Stockton, you know, on and on. Some great, talented, wonderful people. And uh, and it, it was just and the directors and all the people I got. Vern Lundquist. I mean, I could go down the list. And they were great. And I loved it. But uh, I still craved, and I didn't realize it, craved that, that desire to be back in the in the in the action. Sure. And and that's what happened. Though one night, I went down to see the uh, Chicago Bulls playing the Sixers, and Al Bianchi and Johnny Kerr were the were a training camp with me my first year. So I went down to say hello to them. And I was going to go have a beer with him afterwards, and I called my wife, and she said, uh, Pat Williams wants to call you, speak to you. And I said, what does he want? I said, I, she said, I don't know. So fast forward, I call him, and he explains to me that um, Mitch Dixon, the owner of the team, uh, wants to get rid of Gene Shue, and his first choice is you, and if you don't take it, he's going to get somebody else. So I went home. Spent a day or two talking to my wife and uh, talking about it. And of course, I've made a decision uh, to coach, and it was uh, it was a great experience. And yep. one of the smart things I realized I had never coached or done anything like this. I, I was able to get uh, crazy. I had met this man, not hadn't spent more than a half an hour of time with him. And I said to Pat Williams, I said, you know, I'm going to give this guy a call to see if he wants to become an assistant coach with me. And I call him, and he informs me that I need $35,000, and I'll take the job. And it was Chuck Daly. That's a great hire. And, yeah, but there was no interview. To, just sat with him for, uh, if, you know, we sat 20 minutes, and uh, he was comfortable. I was ready. Let's go. And uh, we grew to become great friends besides partners, and then, of course, he went on and had an illustrious career in the NBA as a coach. Yeah. he. So I guess at the time you hire him, he's up at Penn, right? Exactly where he was, which, and this is like in October, and if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, he's getting ready for the season, and he still was able to leave and join me. So that's how much he wanted to get into the pro game. So just uh, timing, and also I had Jack McMahon, who was there with uh, Gene Shue, and I had 50 years of coaching experience sitting with me. And, um, you know, they helped me with direction, different things, threw options at me, and we had a very good working relationship. And then after a year or so, you know, I was, I knew who I was, and I knew what I wanted the team to be uh, at that point, and... Uh, we made some decisions and changed the team a few times and uh, had some success. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you get there, in addition to some of the guys who I just rattled off, you, you had obviously, Doc, you know, Julius Irving was there, Dr. J. And then after that season, you trade. And it's just interesting to see how that 83 team, six years down the road, starts to build. You trade George McGinnis for Bobby Jones. So that's another piece. Um. And then the next year, Mo Cheeks, Maurice Cheeks, is drafted. And it, you know, from what it sounds like and what I've kind of read, you went from kind of a team of superstars to like more of a team concept. Um, well, you're exactly right what we did. And one of the things, the most important thing was, Julius Serving is such a wonderful man. 
he did not walk into a locker room and say, hey, I'm Dr. J, and, uh, you know, fall behind me. We had to place him in that position, and once we, he felt comfortable that he was in charge, it, everything changed. And that's why he and George McGinnis were two similar players. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Jones complimented Julius. And Maurice Cheeks, we found, uh, I went to Cincinnati, and the agent was having a tryout, guys trying out. And uh, we were able to draft Maurice Cheeks in the second round. And the other thing we did is we traded World Be Free, and we traded Joe Bryant. And the two of them became Charles Barkley and Andrew Toney. Amazing. Yeah, that the, yeah. the World Be Free pick is amazing because you trade him in 78 for a 1984 draft pick, if, if I read that correctly, and which becomes yep. Barkley. That's yep. that's foresight. <laughs> yeah, but we just needed we had too many people that wanted to be a star, right? And they were great. You know, World Be Free was a wonderful player, but we had enough stars. Um, and so, and so, in '80, you go to the finals, you lose to the Lakers. That's where you know Magic Johnson kind of famously plays center uh, in the last game. So you know you're getting close, but you're not there yet. And that's when you draft Andrew Tony, and he, he's. As a, as a guy who was not a 76ers fan, he was one of my favorite players. He was just such an incredible shooter from outside. Um, yep. Such a shame that his career ended, you know, short, had a shortened career because of injuries. Tell me a little bit about Tony and what you saw from I okay. didn't see him personally because I was coaching. But um, Chuck Daly went, um, Jack McMahon had had a heart attack. So, so Chuck went down to see Andrew play. And came back and said, he's our guy. And then, uh, you know, this is how people can look differently at players. And Dean Smith happened to have coached him in a some all-star game in uh, Hawaii and uh, didn't like him at all. And uh, the one thing, thinking about Andrew, he was a tough-nosed so-and-so. And <laughs> I guess the people in Philadelphia still tease me about just yelling his name, Andrew, because at times he would go off and do what he felt like doing. But the one thing I look at that, that I didn't do a good job of, and no one was doing a good job at the time, is utilizing the three-point line with his abilities. Uh, I should have looked at that, and now you see that he would have been fantastic in today's game sure. um, with the three-point line, because that was an easy shot for him. And uh, he was just great. He was had no fear. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. look at big games, he was going to be there. No worries. He just cared about winning, too. That's He and Maurice Cheeks, it's a shame they, the two of them never got a chance to play a little longer together because they were a special backcourt group because they complimented each other. They loved each other on and off the court. And uh, uh, it was, just, you know, I, I was one, one of the things that we were able to do is I had a special group of men. And Looking at what they've done with their lives since since playing basketball, uh, I'm so proud of them and what they've been able to do and achieve with their lives, and they're just really positive people in our society. Yeah, yeah, and and one tough decision. I mean, ultimately, it's the decision that that made you guys the champions. But one tough decision much must have been. Um, well, after '82, you you break through, you beat Boston. 
um, in a really dramatic Eastern finals, but then you lose to the Lakers again. There's that one missing piece and you get them with Moses Malone, but to do so you have to trade Caldwell Jones. Was that a tough, yeah. I mean, that tell was me very that hard. Decision. Yeah. It, it was great, great learning experience for me because Caldwell Jones played no matter what it was, broken nose, broken fingers. He always showed up and played, played as hard as he could. And he just played to win, to help the team win. And that was very emotional for me. But looking back at it, it was a silly thing because I had to do what was best for the team. And I realized it very quickly, meeting Moses. And a lot of the players initially when the trade was made, well, when he, actually Moses was a free agent and we signed him. And then it was just a little compensation we gave them. But the, uh, the other players were not happy that we made all these decisions because we traded uh, Daryl Dawkins to New Jersey. We Steve Mix went to the Lakers. So there were, it was a little bit of a breakup of the franchise. And a lot of the guys didn't like that because they were very comfortable. And, but after a couple of days of training camp, they were very glad that Moses was uh, on their side. Yeah. And and he was an interesting figure because he's one of the first guys ever to just skip college altogether, go straight from high school, but he's in the ABA and he's, he's with Utah and he's with that spirits of St. Louis team. And he's in Buffalo for like three games. I interviewed Bob McAdoo on the show about two months ago. And it's just the crazy, like, like Moses Malone was on the Braves for like two games. Um, and he was like, Oh, you can be sure we could see how good he was, but then he was gone. Um, so, and, you know, obviously he'd settled in and become a, a real, you know, star with Houston. His hero was Julius Irving. And he knew that the one thing Julius needed in, to close out his whole repertoire was just a, a, a championship. And he was, it was very important for himself as well as for, uh, for getting it for Doc. And uh, I'll never forget one of the things he said to me. Uh, well, you know, he, he always said four, four, four. Right. And he said that one night in the trainer's room where he was, his knee was not in good shape towards the latter part of the year. And I said, well, from your mouth to God's ears. And I kind of laughed, but he was pretty close because it was four, five, four yeah. uh, at the end of the day. And it, going into the last game, we're up three zero against the Lakers in LA. And I'm at, we're at practice and the trainer comes over to me and said, we got an issue. And I said, oh, no. He said, Moses cannot exhale. Someone, he got hit in the back or his lung or something is wrong. And hmm. I said, oh, no. So I go over to him and I said, Moses, how are you doing? But, you know, he said, don't worry. Kareem doesn't want to see me anymore. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> well, that's funny. And and I had seen you. It was funny because, you know, most coaches – you know, say the, you know, say all the right things in front of the camera, but somebody asked you about that fourth game and you said, we want to win this game. Like we want to, we want to put them away. We want to make, send the message like the sweep and all of that. Um, it, you know, it just seemed like it kind of put a period at the end of the sentence for that, for the legacy of that team, you know, sweeping yes. through the playoffs the way you did. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, and it, it was easy to say if you were around the players, you knew that there was a, I think too, something was very interesting is I think almost all the games we won, the 12, we might have been behind at halftime. Hmm. And it was like uh, we knew what we had to do in the second half. And they would go out. I think the first game we played the Knickerbockers in that series, in that, that year. And we were down 20, I think, at halftime hmm. and still won the game. 
it was we were an exceptionally good defensive team. Yeah. And uh, had the ability to turn it on, which they did. What was the locker room like afterwards? Now you've won as a player and a coach. What was that like? Oh, you know, the different emotions that you saw. You know, there was a player, Clint Richardson. He was sitting in a corner just crying. And uh, just uncontrollable. And Bobby Jones was trying to comfort him. And, you know, the rest, Julius, Moses, myself, you know, we were Harold Cash, the owner. We were all ecstatic. You know, it's just, uh, it, it, it's much as anything, it's a relief. You right. know, we were pretty close the the previous years. And um, we were only missing one thing, a physical presence. And that was Moses Malone. And he brought it and uh, he delivered. Yeah. And then, um, and then, and then the next year, you guys are you know really good again, fifty-two and thirty. But you you know kind of surprisingly lose to the Nets in the first round of the playoffs. And yep. I, I saw you you quoted saying something like you know if there was any one, maybe not regret, but you know frustration with your career was just not being able to get those guys. And, and I think you said specifically ment- mentally more so than physically to get to that level that they had been at the year before. What's that like? I mean, you know, repeating is just not an easy thing to do. No, it isn't. It sure isn't. And we all wanted it. Everybody wanted to repeat. It wasn't a matter of that. It was just, and we happened to have been leading in that game with like seven minutes to play by five or six points. I don't remember exactly, but it was almost like we just ran out of gas. It wasn't a lack of effort and nothing you can do. And it's a, that's a very frustrating moment for, as a coach. Sure. Sure. And then, and then, and then that next season, uh, well, so right after that season, you draft Charles Barkley. Uh, it would be your last year, another wildly successful season. You're 58 and 24. You make it to the finals uh, of the Eastern Conference again versus the Celtics. You've got the, the rookie Charles Barkley. Did you, and, and this would be your last year. What did you think of him when you, uh, when you first saw him in training camp? I knew how good he could be. Mm-hmm. I knew that. And um, it was a matter of getting calls, who I love today, and we're very close, uh, getting him to fit in with the program. Right. And Charles was very difficult that way, uh, coming out of college. He, he had his own way. And it didn't matter that Moses and Doc were there. And uh, it was frustrating because I wanted to start him. But if I started him, uh, I don't think it would have been good for his career. And so, and I know the owner was upset. You know, why aren't you starting him? Well, he's got to fit in with the, the group and the program. What we're trying to accomplish. And at the end, I think he kind of got the the hint and understood what was what we were talking. And it was one of the reasons made a tough coach quitting coaching because I knew that I could help him become a better player. And right. Obviously, he didn't need me to become an MVP and a great player. But um, that was one thing I knew, that I could help him get there. And uh, he went on and just had a great career. Now he's the mouth of the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> he's must-see TV. You have to watch him. He's, he's, it's engrossing. Charles is better than the games. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's uh, pure entertainment. Um, right, right. Just, uh, going back for a second. You know, uh, uh, two things st- stand out to me. One is 
obviously your early association in the NBA with Wilt Chamberlain. I saw you say something that just blew me away. Every now and then you hear a stat that just stuns you. There was a year, an 82 game season where you played with Wilt Chamberlain, where he missed five minutes in 82 games. You understand why he missed the five minutes. Yeah, he got tossed, right? He got thrown out of the game. He got thrown out of the game. That's the only reason he missed five minutes. It's incredible. That, that's why, you know, people, great, truly, truly special players. Like, I think um, Curry is special because he's changed the game and will change the game. Russell changed the game, of course. But uh, Wilt averaged over 48 minutes a game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because you guys played a couple of overtime games, and so that more than offset the five minutes he missed. It's incredible. Absolutely. You know, just uh, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. When you think of guys taking off, you know, a lot of games every season now. That's another topic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, at, your, at your Hall of Fame presentation, I think it was 86, Dean Smith is your presenter. And um, – in there, you, 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 you know, tell us some great stories, but at one point you talk about your coaches and we we've touched on all of them in this game, but it really is amazing when you think of, you know, you're recruited by Frank McGuire, you play for Dean Smith, Shays himself is a hall of famer, Alex Hannum, Jack Ramsey, Larry Brown. Uh, you have Chuck Daly on your staff. I mean, it's just an, yeah. plus all the players. I mean, you know, playing with Wilt and Hal Greer. And um, I mean, it's just an amazing compendium of names. Um and I was yeah, it, it really is amazing. And and I, I remember having this conversation with Charlie Joyner because he had like kind of similar, just, a, you know, who's who list. And obviously you could also look at it the other way and say a lot of those coaches are who they are because you were on their team. So it, it cuts both ways. Um, but, uh, but that was just, that was just amazing. Um, and, and tell me, I, I guess the reason I bring it up is because, you know, as I said, Dean Smith was your presenter. Tell me what Dean meant to you as you looked back on your career. He meant so much to me as a man. I mean, and, you know, you hear so much about analytics and all of this stuff. Dean Smith was doing all this stuff back in the early 60s. Okay? So it's uh, and people are making a fortune doing it for different teams. But um, not only as a coach, he the beauty of him was that if you were sitting at the end of the bench, you were as important to him as me. And I was the star of the team then. And I thought that was fantastic that everybody was treated the same. There was no, um, that you're special and you can do things differently. Um, it, it, just just think about this. James Worthy, Michael Jordan, Carter, trying to think of some other play, people that played for him that left early. They ended up going back after becoming millionaires to get their college degree because they promised him. Hmm. That, that says a lot about the man and what the feeling was about him as a person. He's just, yeah. uh, he was special. That's impressive. Okay. Uh, Billy Cunningham, I have to tell you, thank you so much for coming on Chasing Hardware. Fascinating hearing the stories about, you know, the playground ball in Brooklyn back in the 50s, your years at Erasmus Hall, North Carolina, winning titles with the 76ers. Uh, and coaching the 76ers to a title, your time in the ABA. What a fascinating career. Thank you so much for coming on Chasing Hardware. Well, I hope I can do it again with you on Chasing Hardware. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Billy. Take care. Hey, buddy. You'll be good. 
And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.